Hi, and welcome to Ethnographic Imagination Basel, a series on how to reimagine the world from the mundane. My name is George Pomeu, and this episode is on possibility, uh, what it takes um, to know what is possible and to perceive the world otherwise. Our guest is Anand Pandian, whose book, A Possible Anthropology, Methods for Uneasy Times, published in 2019, explores the possible in relation to knowledge, politics, uh, experience, but also specifically in relation to mundane acts of reading, writing, teaching, and researching. So stay tuned for a conversation on how to tackle the possible uh, in a way that can help us rethink the world. Anand Pandyan is professor and chair in the Department of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. In addition to a possible anthropology, the book on which our conversation will primarily focus today, he's author also of Crooked Stocks, Cultivating Virtue in South India, published in 2009, Aya's Accounts, A Ledger of Hope in Modern India, published in 2014, and Real World, An Anthropology of Creation, published in 2015. Uh, Anand's research has spanned across a variety of topics from environmental ethics, e ecological sensibility, and agrarian cultivation to film, art, music, always with an eye out for um, uh, how anthropology uh, can be done with an open mind, um, with an eye out for possibility. Anand, uh, you're joining us uh, today virtually from Baltimore. A hearty welcome to you. Um, it is a pleasure um, to have you uh, on our podcast. Thank you so much for the kind invitation, George. I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let me just start with, with the first question, since our episode is on possibility and since the possible has been so central to, um, to your work generally, um, but in particular to a possible anthropology. Um, you say that engaging with the world ethnographically um, is a way to expand the limits of the possible. As you put it, to expand the scope of what remains um, on the threshold of possibility. Let me open up by asking you um, to tell our audience what is possibility for you um, and how, um, in your longer trajectory as an anthropologist, did you happen upon it? Um, did you come to think, we need to think about um, possibility, ethnographically or otherwise? Thank you so much, George. That's a, it's a wonderful question. And it is, I suppose, a theme that runs throughout the work that I've been engaged in as an anthropologist. I, if I were to think about it, I think that in some ways, when I, when I speak of possibility or write of possibility, I am thinking about the openness of things, the chance that things will be other than what we expect, the likelihood that in any given circumstance, things will wind up differently than what the actors in that place, or even an ethnographer in their midst might've expected them to be or do. And this is something I think that is of course a feature of the world and, and thank goodness for that because it seems so often that things are headed unshakably down some dark and difficult course. I think at this moment in particular, we see all around the world forces of closure, a politics of closure, circumstances that would lead us to believe that 
certain forms of eventuality are not only likely, but almost inevitable. So at some level, thinking of possibility, thinking with possibility, writing about possibility involves an insistence that things can still be otherwise and a commitment to look for those openings that remain in the world, the chance that things could work out differently with regard to environmental politics, for example, or the politics of migration or uh, questions of global health or any number of the issues that we wrestle with as anthropologists. But the other side of it, I think that is also quite important to me and something that I try to gesture toward in that most recent book that you mentioned, Impossible Anthropology, is the idea that there's something in the way that we work as anthropologists and ethnographers that involves not only an attention or an attunement to possibility, but also an amplification of mm. possibility, that we have ways of engaging with the texture of empirical circumstance that can in fact open things up, whether through forms of practical intervention that we engage in, in a more activist register or in the midst of these uh, situations or in the writing and other forms of expression, whether visual, textual, audio or otherwise that we do in the storytelling. And the, the, the sense that I have is that those stories can actually open up the sense of reality of those who encounter them. And, persuade people that things in fact can be otherwise. And to get to that last question that you asked about how I got here, I'd say very simply and very quickly that it arises for me from a realization time and again in any work that I've done with uh, other folks in the name of ethnography, that there is in fact enormously creative way in which people engage the world, whether as far farmers uh, who were the subjects of my first book or as filmmakers and creative producers who were the subject of another or even my own grandfather who had to navigate very complicated life circumstances over a near century of life. There is in fact a scope, a real serious scope for creative improvisational engagement and I've tried to meet that scope myself as an ethnographer and to derive, to work with methods that can echo that sense, perhaps, as I said earlier, even amplify that sense of possibility that one might already see in the world uh, as an anthropologist. So if possibility means um, a particular way of engagement and also, um, to some extent, letting go of certain paradigms that we became habituated with, but that don't allow us, um, which don't allow us to necessarily see this possibility for something else, um, I wonder, and I wanted to go back a bit to the context. Uh, this is a context in which you said we need to insist upon possibility probably more than usual. Now, I wanted to think a bit more with you about that context. We live in a time when one might argue that a, a certain desire for certainty has become somehow chronic. We want to know. We want to know for sure uh, who is with us, who is against us, who belongs and who doesn't, whom we can trust and we, whom we cannot. Um, we see the desire for certainty across a spectrum of political culture and not just in any, let's say, in the US or in Europe. We see it across the world. Um, this is also, in a way, a desire for closure um, uh, in some contexts, uh, for of cl closing off categories, spaces, debates, uh, rather than open them up um, uh, in the name of security, in, 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 in the name of, of belonging, uh, what have you. Now, 
what do you make of this context? Um, and because you say, well, we need to insist upon possibility, um, but also insisting upon, upon possibility means um, engaging with these um, hegemonic forces, whatever we want to call them, oppressive forces, that push us to do the opposite, to, to hold on for something, to, to want to know it for sure, and to gain the security of knowing it for sure. Hmm. I was wondering what, hmm. what you think about that. Yeah, it, that's a, it's, a, it's a really important and ultimately rather difficult problem, isn't it? A lot of that difficulty, I think, has to do with the real needs that often accompany the demand for closure, the deeply felt sense of unease, of existential precarity, of uh, potentially being without a place or out of place that uh, drive that drive so many of these uh, movements for. Um, for closure of belonging, for closure of, uh, of of how it is that we see what is real and and what is not, like for for the drawing of of those boundaries, we have to acknowledge that there are very strong feelings that propel that politics and even those cultures of closure that you've spoken of. This is something that I've been wrestling with myself as an ethnographer over these last few years working on a book about walls and boundaries in the United States as a response to the politics of wall building, both literal and figurative, that really overtook our national politics in this country over the last few years. This is the, the most recent book project that I've been working on, a manuscript that I'm, I'm trying to finish up at the moment. And, uh, and so wrestling with this problem as an ethnographer, I've had to be acutely aware of the intractability of these commitments. There's nothing that anyone can say very lightly yeah. about uh, about possibility, about the promise mm -hmm. of things being otherwise, about the hope that one might invest once again in openings of one kind or another when we pay close attention as ethnographers to the way in which those attachments to closures of diverse kinds are sutured so deeply into the texture of everyday life in milieus like that of the contemporary United States. There's nothing to be sanguine about here. And yet, I think, I feel that we really have in some ways no choice but to pursue these questions because they have become problems of survival. They have about them an existential quality. The closures that our societies insist stridently upon these days are not capable of bequeathing us a livable future. And anyone who's concerned about the pursuit or even the, the actualization uh, of, a more, of a more livable future has to bear down on those openings, has to find a way of coming back around to them, has to find a way of, of kindling them further and nurturing them further. And luckily, I think we have ways of doing that as anthropologists and ethnographers. I think we actually have techniques to do that. That's partly why the subtitle of this recent book is called Methods for Uneasy Times, because we have them. 
So if I understand you correctly, then the point is also to pay attention to how this desire for closure, desire for certainty and so on, comes out of a context that renders it legitimate or not legitimate, perhaps also understandable. It's understandable that certain feelings are felt. Um, how do we defer investing in these false promises of closure, uh, the false promise, uh, if I may call it that, the false, false promise of a certainty, um, you know, I need to know who belongs and who doesn't, um, to open up uh, possibility for thought, for imagination, and for future making in a quite material way um, that don't foreclose as much exactly you know i uh i live in the city of baltimore which is a complicated city as complicated as any american city it's a post-industrial city in the sense that uh, this is a place that really came to life in the 19th century as an industrial center for an emerging american power uh, and gained a great deal of prosperity and vitality on account of that industrial activity, much of which began uh, to, to, to kind of move away or, or come away from the city and its fabric in the later decades of the 20th century. And all around us are shells and remnants, the detritus of that industrial past and and dominant media narratives about the city in which i live dwell on themes of uh, of uh, of decay of neglect of loss of ruin there's a way in which those images can easily overtake and in fact become hegemonic when it comes to the experience and spectacle of a city like this one and yet of course there's an enormous amount of vitality and engagement mm -hmm. that people pursue now i've been i've had the privilege of working very closely over the last few years with environmental justice organizations in who are whose whose base is often in some of the most um uh, some of the most polluted zones of the city some of the the most uh some of the regions of the city most affected bo both by that advent of industry and by its by its recession and yet people are organizing very actively and very persuasively to in the service of, a, of another imagination of a possible future uh, that would chart a different path for a city like this. Uh, we're in the midst right now of, of an active movement to imagine uh, a future for the city that would not require us to be, uh, to, the, to, to serve as the, um, as the destination point for so much of the coal that is mined in West Virginia and a city through which that coal passes to many other countries around the world. So people are asking this question right now, what would a future for the city without coal, without this central emphasis on fossil fuel production and trade look like and are doing it very persuasively. There are questions of that kind being asked by people who often feel that they have no choice but to ask yeah. those questions because of the circumstances in which those histories have landed them. And at some level, one might make the case that we as anthropologists have uh, an, an ethical and political obligation to, to meet those 
calls and to find ways once again of helping to propel those alternative forms of future possibility through whatever engaged work and writing we could do. So let me ask you then, going back to these forms of imaginative vitality um, that you're referring to and that are already happening, um, and and how does one attend to them? And I wanted to go back to the method of experience um, that you propose. Um, what do you mean by it? And you already hint that there is a method of experience that goes beyond anthropology. It's not a, a, a necessarily just anthropologist who um, would have some sort of monopolized access to it. But I wonder still um, what anthropology might have to uh, offer towards kind of maybe democratizing a method of experience, making it part of um, something like an ethics of being and citizenship in the contemporary world. Um, so if you want to tell us a bit more about what it means and what it can do. So this this book I wrote and published a few years ago, A Possible Anthropology, grew out of a real... Well, a curiosity, but almost even a perplexity, I'll have to admit, uh, of my own with regard to how it is that we do the work we do. What exactly are we doing when we do anthropology? How do we understand what is distinctive about this field? Does it have to do primarily with that object, that putative object of anthropological inquiry, the anthropos, the form of being we know of as the human, or is there something else that we can take instead as the anchor or the fulcrum of the kind of work we do? And I felt that in trying to wrestle with this question, I ought to approach it as I would do any other question, which is in fact, as an ethnographer, that's how I'm trained to do things. And so what I wound up doing for this book is pursuing a series of short, call them ethnographic case studies of anthropologists at work, trying to make sense of what it was that was happening when an anthropologist reads, when an anthropologist writes, when an anthropologist teaches, when an anthropologist does fieldwork. These are some of the questions that animate this chapter on the method of experience uh, in, in, in that recent book. And what I found and what I concluded is that there is something rather unique about the way in which we as anthropologists engage the subject of experience. Of course, it is the case that whether we are engaged with some empirical circumstance as field workers or as writers or as teachers. Of course, it's the case that some experience, some sense of a tangible, practical exposure to what is happening is essential to the way in which we take up or take in that phenomenon, the way in which we engage that empirical circumstance. But then something else happens, which is also quite curious and important, which is that in letting those things pass into us, pass through us, we also carry them beyond ourselves. That is to say, we engage with experience in anthropology in a twofold, in a, in a twofold manner allowing things to act upon us and change our experience, but also carrying them forward in a manner that acts on the experience of others. 
that changes their own experience, that, that there's something about the way in which one goes through something in the name of fieldwork and creates an experience that others go through as well in a transformative manner in the name of an anthropological text that carries that transformative charge of experience all the way through that I feel is actually kind of unique and, and, and important for us to hang on to and to understand. It helps us understand why there's so much of a commitment to affectivity in mm-hmm. ethnographic prose, to engagement, to storytelling, and why, in fact, we dwell, we look at those stories that we dwell on these moments the transformative encounter because there's a commitment i think to passing through the charge of those encounters i mean in and through the work in, in thinking of experience and thinking of, of the this power of the encounter uh, throughout the book you're you're turning to reading uh, people like Bronislav Malinowski, Zora Neale Hurston, um, Claude Levi-Strauss. Uh, and actually, one of my favorite moments in the book is when you're visiting um, now famous uh, French anthropologist Levi-Strauss's uh, uh, study at home and how you reflect about how he's walking through his study as he was uh, concerned with researching myth, how that walk itself becomes part of the experience of imagination and opening possibility. It's, it's a quite fascinating um it's a quite fascinating moment. But what I wanted to ask you here also, it seems to me that both encounter and experience are also already overloaded um, in a late capitalist context with um, with meaning and, and what they are supposed to do. We consume experiences. We consume encounter um, uh, um, uh, forms of, of capitalist pleasure turn us towards experience. In the end, that's where the quality of, of, of consumption lies. Uh, did we pay our money or not? Um, is, did we get our money worth or not? So uh, there is already a, a certain kind of, um, uh, I think, both semantic um, and, and phantasmatic overcharge of what experience is. So when, we, when you talk about experience as something that um, uh, comes with an encounter, transforms you, and through you then encounter somebody else, it seems to me also requires this working on moving beyond or, or disturbing or troubling um, common sense ways in which our bodies experience. Hmm. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you made that point because there's nothing obvious here about how this happens, how it should happen. I'm reminded in listening to you raise this problem of, uh, of Benjamin's observations yeah. in the early 20th century on the evacuation of experience. Yeah. In fact, in the impossibility of experience, right? There's something about uh, the, uh, the knowledge economy of his time, even uh, the overload of what Benjamin called information that makes imp- experience impossible because there's such a constant tide of newness that one can't actually absorb phenomena in the manner that we associate with this possibility that I'm speaking of in the name of experience, right? This is in, uh, Benjamin uh, treats this, this problem. He takes up this problem in, in various places, but especially in his essay on the storyteller. Um, I'm also, though, reminded of the work of the American pragmatist John Dewey, who's also been an important influence on my thinking in this regard and the distinction that 
Dewey draws in his book on art as experience between experience and an experience. So it's never experience as such, because you're right. Like we live in this sort of constant stream of putative experiences, perhaps none of which are really uh, affecting us in the way that they could. The question is, under what circumstances do certain forms of encounter get elevated to the quality of something that has about it the phenomenological consistency that Dewey associates with an experience for Dewey encounters with art can do that at times. And I would make the case that not always, but certainly at times encounters with the density charge and fundamental newness and difference of ethnographic work can also have that effect. Circumstances, of course, everything. Uh, and, and part of the challenge then becomes one of cultivating the circumstances in which that can happen in, in a more fundamentally transformative manner. Yeah, I, I mean, this is also leading to the question about the imagination, because one can encounter without imagination and encounter and experience can merely um, um, validate what you already knew or what you think you know for sure. Um, but the power imagination would be also um, decentering it and seeing other possibilities lining up in parallel um, in ways that otherwise would not be knowable or 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 perceptible. So to, to this question of, of imagination, in particular the ethnographic imagination, I wonder how you think also of the role of the intellectual versus those whom the intellectuals learn from yeah. and give back to, ideally. Um, I mean, this is the old uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci sort of, of question. What, what role does the intellectual play in this and these things? And more particularly for us with experience and with ethnographic imagination, uh, what role does the anthropologist play? Uh, we're educators, we're researchers. Um, would you see that work being um, able to be amplified and what is our relationship to our multiple publics and interlocutors? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. Um, the, the first chapter of this recent book stages an encounter between Bronislav Malinowski, in some ways the figure that we associate most with the rise of a scientific ethnographic practice and his contemporary the american the african-american uh, novelist folklorist uh, zora neale hurston who was herself trained as an anthropologist at columbia uh, by um, franz boas and and others and um i do that deliberately as a way of asking what we might learn if we think between the poles of scientific and literary analysis, which we're so accustomed to thinking of as different. I don't know. It's poles is yeah. very different yeah. with very little space between them. And what I try to show is that these two figures have a lot more in common than you would expect. There are modes of literary imagination and expression that are fundamental to the methods that Malinowski puts forward in the name of a scientific 
fieldwork, ethnological practice. And reciprocally, there are very serious ways in which you could think of Hurston's literary work as the expression of a research program. And I try to show that. And and I and I I think that it's worth doing this, thinking through an exercise like this, because it can remind us that some of these basic distinctions that we have inherited in our intellectual equipment, say, between reason and passion, between rationality and imagination, between uh, logic and the, the logical and the aesthetic, like many of these polarities that we think we have to sort of fit our work into in the name of rigor or precision or simple good scholarship may not actually be all that well founded on the real history right. of our discipline. Right. It may in fact be contradicted by the actual empirical texture of what we do and what we long have done and that we may in fact then have many more resources at our disposal than we thought we did and all of the things on the more literary side of the spectrum in particular having to do as you said with imagination having to do with creative expression, having to do with aesthetic encounter. Uh, if all of those things have always been part of the toolkit and necessary elements of the toolkit, then it may give us a little more license to work with them less shamefacedly. And when we do that, I think it also gives us, and this is just coming back to the final aspect of your question, it gives us a different way of coming around to those that we work with because some of the most intractable problems that we face with regard to scholarly authority have to do with the customary elevation of certain modes of thinking and expression over the modes that others are engaged in. But when we suspend that distinction and take seriously the possibility that the difference between the way that we express ourselves and the way that others express themselves may in fact ultimately be, ultimately be a difference of right. kind, uh, sorry, a difference of degree rather than a difference of kind, then it opens us up to more collaborative, engaged work in a variety of different modes and through a variety of different means. And I think you see all kinds of creative work of that kind yeah. happening now in the name of multimodal anthropology, right. for example. Uh, and, and, and I think that there's a lot of scope there actually to ultimately uh, close the, the gap between the kind of thinking that we do in the name of intellectual activity and the more practical forms of thinking and reflection that others engage with uh, in, in their lives through many other means. This is, this is also such a great example of how we might think decolonially about knowledge production by perhaps just letting go of these kind of identitarian claims to disciplinary uniqueness or distinction uh, and attending instead to um, the multiple path um, that, uh, that existed and continue to exist um, uh, despite those claims. Uh, Anand, we are already out of time. I do want to uh, encourage um, our viewers, if they are interested to learn more about the topic of possibility that we discussed, to check out um, uh, your book, A Possible Anthropology. Um, and I want to thank you very much 
for uh, your time and insightful conversation. And we are hopeful that we'll have many more of these in the future uh, one way or another. Thank you. Thank you so much for the chance to talk with you. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening and tuning in. <laughs>